Welcome to the Future Humans podcast with Gene Houston and Annalise Smitsman, the co-authors of the Future Humans trilogy. Hello, everybody. What a wonderful day we have to give for you, because today we have the great pleasure of welcoming two esteemed colleagues who work very closely together, Professor Menas Gavatos and Professor Sudipatra. Sudip and Menas work so closely together, I think that together they're reinventing the world, which quite frankly at this moment needs a reinvention. My co-host is my dear friend, Anna Louise Smitsman, who has recently started work with Sudip to explore the the implications of the quantum potential for economics and social change. My goodness, that really would solve all the problems in the world, wouldn't it? Anyway, they're doing so through a publication that they're co-authoring. Let me introduce you now to these extraordinary thinkers. Professor Emilos Capatos is the Fletcher Jones Endowed Professor of Computational Physics at Chapman University and is the founding dean of the Schmidt College of Science and Technology at Chapman University. He directs the Center of Excellence in Earth Systems Modeling and Observations and has published numerous books, including The Conscious Universe, I've read that one, and The Creative Cosmos with Deepak Chopra. He grew up on the island of Crete, Crete, and he's always been fascinated by the vastness of space. And he questions the questions that arise that relate to the whole blooming universe. His current focus is on the interactions between the intersections, actually, between science and spirituality, the nature of reality, and the quantum implications for everyday life. His co-author, Dr. Sudip Patra, is living in India and is an associate professor there at OP Jindal Global University and executive deputy director of the Complexity Economics, Applied Spirituality and Public Policy Research Center. That sort of covers the world, doesn't it? His current focus is on the quantum-like paradigm quantum foundations, and complexity science applications in and for economics and social sciences. And he is working now with Menas on a book project for a wide understanding of quantum-like reality. It's about time somebody's doing that. And with Professor Gelman on developing a new framework of emergence emergence of the classical world based on affordance, quantum zero effect, and decoherence. Dear friends, a welcome, a great warm welcome to our podcast. Now to my dear co-host, Anna Louise Smitsman. I believe you will have the first question for these gentlemen. Yes, Anna Louise? That's right. And those questions are the big questions of life. So <laughs> although we only have an hour to be here with all of you, um, we're going to see how far we're going to get. So thank you so much, uh, Professors Manas and Sudeep, for joining us. It's really a great honor to have you both here as our guests. And the questions that we have been exploring, um, oh, well, they will take a single lifetime, won't even be enough. <laughs> and... Um, these are actually also the questions that, that keep me awake at night. Um, I feel very passionate about it. And it might even be similar for both of you. In our Future Humans trilogy, we explore the quantum reality of our universe and principles such as non-locality and the implicate orders of reality in the form of narratives and characters that we can all relate to, which is really our contribution to making these hugely fascinating topics and complex ideas more accessible to the mainstream. I will read one small passage and then we go to the question that we have for both of you. And this is from our book, The Quest of Rose, which is the first book of our Future Humans trilogy. And that beautifully phrases the context. 
So this is how it goes. The new paradigm sciences confirm what the ancient mystics have said from the beginning. The universe is truly a great unity, which becomes even more apparent when we explore time as a living field in which future, present and past are simultaneous and co-arising. Above all, this is the science of learning the ways in which the local self joins in the adventure of becoming resonant and reflective of the ultimate self, the great oneness, which we call the cosmos. So our first question that we'd like to explore with both of you is, how does consciousness as fundamental reality make localization and individuation possible? Now for our listeners who may not understand those very big words, I'll try to say it more simply. Um, how would consciousness then as you know the ground of reality and it being so vast and all-encompassing make it possible for us to be here in this human form and exist in our individual expressions of this universal vastness? Manas, if we may begin with you and then with uh, Sudeep after that. Thank you both. Um, thank you, Aunt Lois, and thank you, Jean. Um, we speak in first name basis for the uh, honor and invitation. And um, this, of course, this uh, first uh, question is, uh, would take uh, a very large number of volumes and um, um, a lot of thinking to and a lot of uh, approaches that uh, we do not have time in, in uh, an hour, but actually each one of us is um, covering maybe about 10 minutes to for each your question. So let me just get right to it. Um, uh, how does, uh, let me just paraphrase it, but it's the same idea. How does the vast consciousness manage to become uh, local and to appear as um, local beings? So um, uh, both uh, Sudiv and I adhere to the view of a quantum-like universe, and I want to emphasize quantum-like uh, which is, of course, quantum at very deep levels, but um, um, also extends to uh, all uh, scales of existence, whereas uh, traditional thinking uh, among, in fact, a lot of physicists is that uh, the quantum only really applies at the nanoscale level or atomic level, um, and, of course, even smaller levels, and not really at the human level or above. Well, we already know that, in fact, that is not the case because we have um, quantum phenomena that apply the biological scales. Um, for example, chlorophyll, um, um, the whole processes of chlorophyll and uh, beyond um, are, are quantum, um, actually quantum, not, not even quantum-like by quantum. And uh, now we actually um, see the evidence that um, in some ways, uh, quantum phenomena really apply to the large-scale st structure of the universe. So they're not um, they're not small scale only. So having said that, um, how does how does um, universal consciousness uh, manage to do that? Uh, we call her she, <laughs> you know, to emphasize the feminine aspect of creation because in the in the um, Hindu uh, way of thinking of uh, philosophical systems, the creative energy is feminine, not female, but feminine, to indicate the active part. Um, and um, whereas uh, the masculine aspect um, um, is uh, more passive. The two, of course, the passive and the active are uh, inexorably connected together. And um, uh, what, um, in fact, would be uh, perhaps the first uh, principle that quantum-like universe follows, which is the uh, principle of complementarity, was first uh, identified by Niels Bohr um, back in the um, 20s or so, when um, uh, primarily he and Heisenberg, Werner Heisenberg at the beginning, but then uh, a number of other uh, mostly young, um, uh, bright uh, physicists, uh, mostly in Europe, um, put together, uh, known, to the, known together to, today as the quantum 
physics, I prefer to also call it quantum mechanics, which was the original name. So how does, how does consciousness do that? Well, perhaps by taking certain limitations, uh, assuming certain limitations, that give the appearance, appearance of um, something that is not really there or is partially there or gives something um, the view that, um, uh, well, you know, um, what you see is um, really what you get. <laughs> In this case, you see a limited, uh, a limited being, a limited human being, a limited existence. That is what it is. So this is um, uh, covered uh, by the layers of Maya, um, and we're using now some terms, Sanskrit terms, um, and I'd like to ask pardon for that, but um, we have uh, found that uh, the power of language is very important. Uh, Jean and I were uh, joking a little before we started by talking about the ancient, uh, the wonders of ancient Greek language, and indeed, um, uh, there's some, there are not only some words, but the entire structure of language cannot um, be uh, repeated in another language. So um, you can read the Iliad or the Odyssey in uh, English, and you get the idea, but it's not the idea. It's actually the living presence of the language. So how does she, um, and we'll call her Shakti, because she is the universal energy, how does uh, Shakti give rise to a limited human being. It's by assuming limitations. And in case of human beings, these limitations manifest as um, basically five senses, senses which, uh, um, of course, they're the auditory, the visual, etc., um, the olfactory. So basically, we smell, we, we, we uh, talk, uh, and we see. And we, you know, and, and we hear and we touch. And these um, are great senses. Um, they're associated with um, a human being. Of course, high, higher primates, higher mammals also possess them. Um, why, why would such um, wonderful <laughs> devices of creation, so to speak, um, uh, give us limitation? Well, it, it really uh, depends on the context, and I think we're going to talk about uh, what's so deep in the context of situation, because uh, the context here is uh, a, a being, let's call it a being, whether it's human or divine, and in fact that being is not, none other than Shiva, the universal uh, the conscious um, existence, being itself, capital B. Um, takes on the limitations and assumes through the through the workings of Shakti, the cohort or or if you like the wife or the partner of Shiva, um, she, uh, takes on uh, limited um, uh, attributes and appears to be limited. Uh, in one of the of the sutras of the of the great uh, Shaivite uh, system, um, uh, this particular book is called the Pratyabhijnakridaya, which means the secret of uh, self-recognition. So in the Pratyabhijnakridaya, um, um, Chiti, which is another name for Shakti, Chiti meaning, meaning the uh, universal conscious, um, conscious mind, um, says that uh, there's no difference between universal mind and individual mind. Um, this is actually a big, big statement because we human beings think that, uh, oh, my mind is different than your mind. Um, and as soon as we have that assumption, everything else follows and goes downhill. <laughs> There's really one mind. And if you actually, if you think of a different point of view of science, uh, whatever mind is, if we think of its characteristics, for example, non-local, um, expanding, um, sort of fuzzy, <laughs> not not really specific to uh, well uh, the physicalists or the scientists who believe that everything is physical. They would say, well, it's in the brain. Well, we know that it's not just in the brain. Um, how how then is um, how then is, is this going on? Well, it's going on because these limitations taken on by JT or Shakti um, give the appearance of a limited being. But in fact, the characteristics, the powers, 
of the individual being are the same as that of universal consciousness. And there are three characteristics, and I'll talk about those later on. Thank you. Thank you so much. And, and I love what you shared because in, in our trilogy as well, we're talking about the feminine aspect also as a contraction to, to be able to for the universe to, to contract, creating boundaries and therefore context in the, uh, the mystical uh, Jewish Kabbalistic tradition and talking about constrictions as well in order to make creation purposeful and um, to, make, um, to make it manifest and to constrict or conceal in order to reveal um so what you just touched right. on is you know yeah <laughs> i think really really fundamental um, exactly exactly right and yeah. uh, sudeep would love to hear from you to build on this <laughs> yeah thank you very much first of all uh, i'm very honored that uh, i'm invited and sharing stage with you all uh, Minas and I have been discussing on these issues for some time now. Uh, I will be rather starting with um, the quantum uh, physics as well as quantum-like paradigm. So you see that as Minas pointed out that in 1925, basically uh, Heisenberg being one of the you know very, very young, bright minds, he was I think 24, 25 years of age. So he comes up with this uh, paper, quantum mechanics. So he uses that word, particular word there. And later on, Niels Bohr being uh, one of the father figures of that group, Copenhagen group, so-called. Um, so he started developing the philosophy, one can say, the philosophy behind quantum mechanics. And their uh, contextuality, complementary, complementarity became one of the most important uh, philosophical underpinning of quantum physics. And contextuality, complementarity in a way is the way, as far as I understand, that non-local consciousness can appear as to be like kind of like, you know, specific results or specific um, kind of forms. So this uh, conversion or this kind of transformation from non-locality to uh, contextuality, complementarity, that is the route that we need to explore more to understand that how this localization really happens. Now, going back to Niels Bohr's original ideas, uh, you will see that Bohr was really different from Heisenberg. You know, the point which also Minas mentioned that Bo when Bohr started understanding about contextuality, he was much more like a complexity scientist. So he was thinking that, well, contextuality is not simply, uh, you know, kind of divide between classical and quantum systems, not like that. It's a kind of like a context between um, the system to be measured and the observer and mingled into a whole. So that holism was the context rather than, in a way, divide between quantum uh, quantum system and macroscopic classical system, which unfortunately later on became, because, you know, Heisenberg introduced this concept of Heisenberg cut, and that became quite popular. Maybe that helped to do calculations and computation was more easy in that way. But context also basically uh, reflect this holism concept very much. So that is very important uh, because that also has this, uh, you know, reflection of non-locality in it, as far as I understand. Um, now, then what happened was that later on, quantum physics uh, became very much computational. Basically, yeah, just building on what Sudeep was just saying, that um, there's an important difference, and it is the contextual um, aspect that brings forth the uh, quantum reality. By, by that, we mean the participation, let me just say the participation of the observer, uh, which is very, very important in a quantum system. Um, and um, by the way, um, I would like to uh, add something that uh, the book with Deepak Chopra, there, it's a New York Times bestseller. Um, uh, the title is, uh, the title that eventually was published uh, is um, You Are the Universe. Uh, so that that is, uh, and there we actually explore in one of the chapters the uh, quantum nature of the cosmos. Uh, mm -hmm. So in the in the universe, um, the title itself says it all. Basically, says that each one of us is the whole, uh, even though uh, we appear to be individual uh, beings. So from that point of view, um, there were. Um, differences between um, Heisenberg and Schrodinger 
in the actual Copenhagen School. Of course, what is um, more well known is are the differences between Albert Einstein and Niels Bohr. Um, these are celebrated um, differences that were known for 35 years or more. Uh, even though Einstein got the Nobel Prize, uh, not for the theory of relativity, but for, uh, for quantum mechanics that he helped build together. It's actually a very interesting historical fact. But in any case, um, to wrap up uh, what I was just saying, um, it was not just Einstein and Bohr, but it was also Heisenberg <laughs> and, and Bohr who differed. And uh, I, we should look at these differences as um, this is a, perhaps a historical, sociological um, a statement, not as um, really uh, opposite leading, leading to a division, uh, but rather as different aspects of the one reality that encompasses all. So that's all I would say right now. Yes, actually, so uh, Binaz and I are actually exploring these interesting differences between different founders of quantum mechanics, um, Bohr and Heisenberg, for example. Uh, but later on, uh, also what happened, as, as I was just about to finish this off, that there was a rise of this quantum-like paradigm. Now, quantum-like paradigm basically builds upon these principles, the principles of contextuality, complementarity, deep uncertainty, and non-locality, and observes that these are the same principles that we find in cognition, in decision-making, in um, kind of social sciences also. So it's kind of like these principles ties up all the existence. It is not simply that uh, it is only natural science or social science. So that is also our interest lies, where also our interest lies. And again, to understand these principles well, we have to think about fundamental consciousness because it is the aspect, these are the different aspects of the same fundamental awareness of consciousness, which is creating or, you know, or generating all these principles. So I think that uh, this is one way which is very radical from the way modern science or modern quantum physics is going. Because as Mina has already mentioned that it is all about physicalism as of now. So basically we come up with, uh, even in you know those models which thinks about like uh, consciousness late collapse of the wave function, that is also very much like emergentist model. So they think about consciousness as a kind of like emerging from brain functions only you know, our core model by Sir Roger Penrose and Stuart Hammer. But we are taking a different route altogether. We think that, no, first of all, we have to come from uh, the fundamental awareness. So fundamental awareness is expressing itself in the form of contextuality, complementarity, non-locality, uh, uh, non and uncertainty. And then only it is possible for us to understand reality better. Uh, in a way, it uh, has some support from, one can say, Cognitive scientists also, like Don Hoffman, Donald Hoffman and others, they were also thinking in, in more or less in the same line, but maybe their uh, uh, ways are different. But ultimately, consciousness fundamentalism is one thing that we need to explore. Well, thank you both for these profound, profound ideas that have such far-reaching implications for how we as humans relate with the universe. Of course, that's something that we, we've been dealing with probably in one way or another for thousands of years, haven't we? Um, and I, I find that for most of my working life, I've been exploring the relationship between our states of consciousness and our experience and engagement of reality. Uh, when my husband, Robert Masters, was still alive, we wrote a book that became a huge bestseller called Mind Games, uh, which also served as inspiration for the Beatles. And this, what this book did is it gave people tools for altering their own consciousness, both separately as well as in groups. And I have found that in my decades of working in consciousness research, guiding people through time-altering experiences, that when people enter into what's called higher consciousness states, they seem to access information about themselves, about others, and even about the universe, which is frankly remarkable, and at times seems miraculous. Where could they have found that? 
because they hadn't studied with you gentlemen. If they had, that'd be something else again. But it, it was interesting that uh, all these experiences that so many people go through, these with remarkable creative breakthroughs and discoveries, which leads me to our next question. When people experience the sheer luminous <laughs> experience, experience of consciousness of this enormous unity, this higher in their higher consciousness states, would you say that they are experiencing access to states that correspond to what the mystic traditions refers to as cosmic knowledge, and some physicists perhaps refer to as non-local knowledge, non-local knowledge in action beyond the classical definition of reality, which we have also referred to in our books as non-local quantum states of simultaneous possibilities. So dear Professor Minas, if I may ask you again, question first, and uh, after that, Professor Sudip. Thank you, Jean. Um, again, um, another profound question. Um, how does, basically it ties to the first question or to the first point. Um, the, so we, we emphasize that the limitations are perhaps brought about in the case I brought about, you know, I mentioned the human existence through the sensory input and uh, uh, Sudip talked about the um, characteristics of quantum-like. Uh, I would say, and this is something that um, I would like to emphasize, that um, being non-local and universal is easy. <laughs> In fact, it is, it is the easiest thing in the universe. The difficult thing is to um, have individual existences. So the physicalist or the materialist point of view, um, that um, maybe 80%, I would say, maybe it used to be 95%, but now it's 80% of scientists uh, adhere to, is that, well, you know, um, uh, you, uh, this view of the cosmos is that you build the whole from the parts. Um, so it's like um, you build a house by taking the bricks and by taking mortar, by taking glass, by taking uh, iron, etc., etc., paint, and that's how you build a house. Yes, that's how you build a house. <laughs> However, the contextuality situation is if you don't have a blueprint, <laughs> if you don't have an idea what the house or the cathedral or the temple is going to look like and start putting together uh, paint and uh, and um, glass and um, iron and steel and and mortar etc cetera, etc cetera, you're going to get nothing you're going to get a mess you it's just not, you're not going to get any structure so uh, the structure arises from the infinite, not the other way around. And this is a fundamental problem the, of physicalism that uh, perhaps um, uh, we ought to point out a bit more with Sudip and others, that it's easy to um, calm down, so to speak, or to say that it's easy to de uh, descend from, from the uh, non-local uh, non reality uh, that means in space and in time and other ways also limitless <clears throat> existence to um, limited uh, beings and in fact those limited beings would probably have to be I cannot prove it but I have a hunch they will probably have to be infinite in number it's, um, uh, it's easier to come down or that is a piece of cake, as we say sometimes in English, and impossible to go the other way. Uh, you don't form wholeness by taking uh, uh, just um, bricks and mortar and uh, glass, put them together, unless there is a plan, unless there is an overall blueprint of what you're doing. So this is, a, this is a, I think, an important point to 
to bring out and maybe we quantum physicists should emphasize that a little bit more. Thank you. It's fascinating, sir, that when you look at some of the things happening simultaneously in the beginning of the 20th century, there was the, at one hand, in the spiritual literature, there was a great deal of translation of this literature that dealt in its own way with the nature of the universe that really runs parallel <laughs> to many of the things that we subsequently discover. But at the same time, Einstein is writing his early equations and it is the birth, uh, or at least the pre-birth of quantum physics. So these two great arenas of knowledge and understanding coming together at exactly the same time. I find that fascinating. Uh, Professor Sudip, yeah. how do you do this? Yes, I think that uh, you know this debate is really uh, so fascinating and deep. Um, you see that uh, you rightly mentioned about simultaneous things happening in the history of science. Uh, for example, I will also get back to another uh, personality, rather, you know, John Neumann. So John Neumann, another mathematical prodigy, student of David Hilbert. Now the same person was creating mathematics for quantum mechanics and also writing books on classical game theory. And you'll see that these two formalisms are completely different. I mean, classical game theory is very much, you know, rational mind and very much like kind of like classical Boolean logic thinking, as we can say. On the other hand, uh, Hilbert space modeling for quantum mechanics uh, at times defy all that. So you have this uh, superposition principle, you have interference and so on, non-locality, et cetera. So it is fascinating to see that how the same human mind can think in two different ways completely. And uh, later on, you can see that, uh, you know, uh, this, uh, this became like two completely two different branches. But hopefully now we are seeing that with the rise of this quantum-like paradigm, people are really coming into understanding that these are really not that much different from each other. These are two aspects of the same reality. So when we are saying that something actualizes, that is like our typical classical world, so-called classical world, but then potentialities are equally real. I mean, uh, actualities are also real, potentialities are also equally real. Um, so we need to come up with a greater framework, as uh, Minas was pointing out, that which can really show that uh, these are different complementarities only of the same great reality. And if we really have to think that, then we have to think from the, uh, you know, we have to begin from the infinity. We have to begin from, you know, that uh, fundamental awareness. From that, this complementary series arises, which we call it as uh, like classical world or we call it hard world or something like that. And um, I think that currently uh, some scientists are really thinking in that way. Certainly, Minas uh, has done a lot of work in that direction. Others are also thinking in more or less uh, same direction, though uh, still a lot of things have to be done because we really do not know what kind of uh, appropriate mathematical frameworks we need to build that kind of a thing because we have been so much well-trained in physicalist view that it is very difficult to go uh, outside that. But here I will just bring in uh, two interpretations of quantum mechanics, which has recently happened. One is this cubism, that uh, quantum Bayesianism. Uh, it started off uh, in that way. Now, cubism tries to say that, you know, this so-called non-contextual objective world is basically an illusion. We, we really don't need to, we really don't have that objective world outside an observer. And on the other hand, uh, quantum formalism is basically a kind of like a guidance, a kind of like a decision theory, which you use to navigate in this kind of an uncertain world. So at least, you know, this particular interpretation has moved away from the typical observer, observe, divide, and uh, typical classical versus quantum kind of a divide. Um, relational quantum mechanics is also more or less uh, in a different route, saying that, uh, you know, it's all about contextuality. So it is all about like kind of relations between systems and relations between observers. 
That is the fundamental thing about this universe, not an objective world outside there. Or there's no uh, existence of the objective wave function outside your consciousness. So I think that these are quite important thinking. And definitely then going back to the main question that when we think about this uh, non-local consciousness or you know go to this higher state of consciousness, definitely I, I, I think that that is the way to go. When we go into the higher states of consciousness, we realize that non-locality. Now, uh, I find that the main fear in uh, traditional physicists, among traditional physicists, is that non-locality will completely break down special theory of relativity because non-locality is like action at a distance. And if you think action at a distance, then relativity will be gone, as Einstein himself feared a lot. But maybe that we need to think about different understanding of non-locality altogether. Uh, why is it the case that uh, we cannot do physics uh, with with help of non-locality? Why we are so afraid of it? So that we also have to think, as far as I see. <laughs> That's a funny thought, but there's, there's some reflection that comes. Maybe what you just expressed, why are we afraid of that? Perhaps this is why uh, some men have been afraid of women. <laughs> because, you know... <laughs> We love to play with non-locality, I tell you. And so here's the great paradox of if the feminine principle is indeed about contextuality, uh, can also create constrictions. And don't we know that with mothers? <laughs> they can put boundaries in place. Uh, perhaps it's it, because of the feminine principle being able to do that, we don't get lost in it. Whereas if you apply those principles in a very rationalistic, um, deductive manner, uh, then you do get lost in it because then that's exactly when you get to this kind of thinking of trying to create the whole from the parts. So it seems to me as well that, uh, you know, we're, when we're really integrating also the feminine and masculine principles in our own thinking and approaches of these bigger questions, perhaps this is also where we're going to make these breakthroughs. Uh, another um, thought I wanted to share with you when you, and which I really appreciate what you just said, Sudeep, is about potentials they exist now and indeed this is also the theory of, of time that we've been working with how future exists now but in a state as information in a state of potentiality uh, and therefore it is it is something that we people can explore already and in the very exploration of it it also can then activate a higher orders of possibilities and so on that topic of time we would uh, like to to share share and ask our kind of final question for this podcast um, and that's really about you know our perception of time as Jean shared earlier it's it's been the focus of her work it's been also the focus of of my work uh, for a very long time and you know there are many many documented stories of people that experience profound states of timelessness um, you know I've experienced this myself also several times in my life, uh, also in the transitions between, uh, you know, wake, waking up or being in what you call a lucid dreaming state. So you're conscious that you're dreaming. And what I found myself fascinating about those experiences is that the timelessness is not that you get lost in a nothingness. In fact, it's like you are behind the scenes and it's as if you are able to observe the very beginning, but you also experience the ending that's already in the beginning. So it's, it's like the, the seed of the ending in its beginning. Um, so the beginning and the ending of the universe, but then as a cyclical process as life and then go, being able to go from as, as vast as universes to your own life and lifetimes and cycles and, and this whole you know, patterning uh, of life. So that in this timelessness, it actually creates an incredible contextuality uh, for the continuation of consciousness, um, simultaneous awareness of the changeless nature and the nature of change. And, um, and also how in, in an experience of, of a split second, it's like we can experience eternity itself. So we'd like to ask, you know, for the final question related to these experiences, would you say that when we enter into these states of timelessness, that perhaps we would be experiencing reality from subtle orders of consciousness that precede or are beyond space-time? Um, 
Philippe, let's begin uh, with you this time and then uh, Minas, if he may uh, complete with you so you have the <laughs> final words of wisdom on this. Yeah, it is. I think that the concept of time is perhaps one of the most difficult concepts in whole of physics, as far as I'm aware of. Minas would be exploring more. Um, and, you know, um, I was just going through some of the papers uh, on in quantum physics sometime back on the concept of time in quantum physics. And I found that there's a lot of debates there. The founders themselves kind of uh, disagreed with themselves on what time is really. So some people thought that time is just a parameter, you know, it's the same as Newtonian space and time. So it is something like a stage, uh, a stage is set where events unfold. On the other hand, some other people thought that no, no, time can be taken as to be a dynamic variable within the model itself. So it is like more endogenous. So the debate continued and um, there is no straightforward answer, at least as of now in quantum, quantum physics, as far as I'm aware of. Now, going back to psychology, uh, you know, you remember that Carl Jung or say Sigmund Freud earlier to that, uh, they were really pointing out to this timelessness. Or in other words, uh, this mental states uh, are not always within time, or they really don't recognize time in the, there's timeless uh, features of mental states also. So that I think is quite important. And I find that as Minas would also say that there was a long conversation between Jung and uh, Wolfgang Pauli, you know, Pauli being one of the masterminds of uh, quantum mechanics. Um, so might be that if we go through their personal conversation, uh, some of this kind of timeless feature of, of, of uh, consciousness might come out. Now, finally, I would also like to say, uh, you know, going back to your uh, very kind of excellent uh, start that you said that, you know, uh, beginning after the end uh, that you mentioned, uh, I was just reading some poems of a great Serbian poet. Uh, his name was Vasco Popo. Vasco Popa or Vasco Popo. So he mentioned about a story which uh, begins after its end. So, you know, this is a, a beautiful poem. There's a beautiful poem. So it talks about this timelessness or continuity of time. Now, if I'm not that, uh, if I'm not very wrong, you will find that the basic concept of time in physics comes from thermodynamics, basically. So, you know, it is the second law of thermodynamics and thermodynamics is an inequality, uh, you know, that, that law is an in inequality rather than equality, which means that there's a kind of order, there's a kind of uh, asymmetry uh, such that we remember the future, uh, such that we remember the past and not the future. But maybe that when we think about cosmic consciousness or when we think about the fundamental consciousness, that cannot be captured totally with the help of this thermodynamic arrow of time. That is different from that. So if it is different from thermodynamic arrow of time, then only we are in a position to explain this timelessness. Because you see, otherwise we will get into the you know very stereotypical thinking of uh, second law of thermodynamics that you cannot defy that. It, it is, so we need a different kind of cosmic awareness uh, understanding to understand that uh, going beyond uh, typical uh, Newtonian space, space and time, or even relativistic space time. That is what uh, I, I can say. When I was 19, I used to jump out of airplanes. I mean, with... <laughs> Uh, parachute. And I had an experience that really relates to the, almost everything everyone's just saying. Um, uh, my chute did not open. Ooh. And what I had probably packed it very badly. And suddenly my whole life went by at its own time, all 19 years. And uh, every every little pork chop and Hershey bar and, uh, you know, tripping on the stoop. It was all there. And then either I landed or we're having a conversation in paradise now. <laughs> but, um, but the fact was that it, it was like time, past, present and future were simultaneous, you know, as many quantum physicists say. And not only simultaneous, but were there to be relived in a kind of totality that was as bright as any uh, potent reality. Um, so I, I would just put that out, that the, the mysteries of time, you know, when I teach people to have 
two minutes of clock time equals subjectively to hours and then have experiences and even creative moments that would normally take hours and it happens. We are in a mystery that is surrounded by a, a even larger mystery. But what is the reason for this mystery? Why do we experience timelessness and at the same time can actualize higher orders of creativity? When I was seven years old, I met Mr. Einstein. And he said to me that, uh, he said, I, I'm not a mathematician. <laughs> he said, my students do the work. I have enormous imagination. And I imagine things so thoroughly that they become real. And so he was always on the great uh, uh, dialectic between reality, imagination, and creativity, which I think was also part of my experience. It's a beautiful quote of Einstein, and if that captures um, his own dilemma, but of course also his vision, because uh, in many, many ways, Einstein was also right. <laughs> With, again, our dichotomous mind um, says that, well, Bohr was right and Einstein was wrong, when it's not, it's not at all the case. Uh, it's just different aspects of the modern reality. Um, so the, in terms of um, this uh, whole point of uh, um, trying to put together the contextual aspects and particularly the the time aspect of which seems to rule our lives um, to no end. Um, space perhaps is a little bit easier to handle. Um, space uh, is associated with objects. You see an object and that defines in a way <clears throat> um, the distance. You say, oh, that book uh, is over there. That picture is over there. <clears throat> Gene is over there. Now, in this particular case, Jean is not, is not my screen. <laughs> She's somewhere else in another part of the world, right? Same with all, all, all three of us or four of us. Um, so the there part is tricky, but associated with <clears throat> um, what we call objects or uh, structures that then in between space can be thought of as an abstract entity. Time is a little bit uh, uh, more fuzzy, to put it in a mild sense, because uh, um, well, where does it come from? And what is, what is this beginning and end? From what point of view? Um, so I think it has to do a lot with identification of the body. And in fact, the, the Buddhists um, say that, <coughs> excuse me, that the one issue, one problem of uh, bound existence, human existence, bound existence. If you wanted to identify one issue, is the issue of identification with the body. And um, so, in fact, I would say, uh, they would say the um, uh, body-mind. And how is that done? Again, through the trickster mind, the mind, um, makes um, time appear to flow, appear to flow from the past to the future. But in fact, what would happen if the future um, came before the past? Um, you say, well, that's a time reversal. Um, is as simple as that. Um, in other words, what if you were, uh, and just be a little bit comic here, what if one was, uh, were born as an old person and died as a young person. <laughs> it was reversed. It would be a fascinating, fascinating reality. I mean, it would be really, really funny. Um, but it's not our reality. So time and consciousness are intimately connected. And if we solve one mystery, we automatically solve the other mystery. I would say that um, timelessness gives, in fact, a um, arises from the non-local, uh, not just in space, but non-individuation, um, non-local aspect of consciousness. So in fact, um, time, uh, the hour of time is a huge illusion, huge illusion. And um, it is in the 
what perhaps creates uh, so many problems in the world. Um, it's a fun world, but if we take it too seriously, it leads us uh, to division, strife, and ultimately war <laughs> and demise. So, um, which of course, um, many people on this planet experience uh, particularly now. Um, timelessness and consciousness or the mind are intimately connected. So with that, I would like to uh, perhaps refer this question of time to another podcast in the future, in the future, or maybe in the past. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we may have already asked the question in the future, so that we're having this conversation now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that may be, you know. <laughs> future humans. Time, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think that, uh, you know, very recently I found that there is a speculation going on that there is another universe which is just uh, somewhere, um, another multiverse where time is like um, the other way around. So it's like time reversal universe. So who knows that? Perhaps we have already asked those questions in <laughs> that universe. <laughs> well, dear friends, we have experienced a great it's, it's more than a panoply, it's almost like a whole season, a, a whole uh, unfolding of the nature of reality. We're living at the time of the cutting edge of a new understandings of who we are, where we are, why we are here, and where we yet may be. And the irony is all of this is happening simultaneously with the breakdown of life as we have known it. And so I have every hope that the kinds of ideas and knowings and passions, indeed, that we have heard today are intimations of what is can come on the other side of awfulness as we begin to rethink not just the nature of reality and the nature of ourselves, but also the possible human and the possible world that really must begin to emerge if we are going to survive our time. And I believe that what we have heard is news from the future <laughs> and, uh, and a kind of push from the past that is going to bring us into a world that is larger than our expectations and more beautiful than all our dreams. Thank you, gentlemen, for the great wisdom and fascinating uh, explorations of the nature of reality that you've given us. Perhaps these um, sounds of from the future and the past are echoing through our awareness and mm -hmm. um, the primary primacy of consciousness is what's behind which is non-local, non-local um, um, non in space and in time and always as soon as you say that, of course, it's always existence and, um, and boundless. And again, remembering that perhaps this you think is the simultaneity, the hard thing is the appearance of separation. And if that we keep in mind, then perhaps this world would be um, uh, turned into heaven that's supposed to be and not into what its present state is, which of division, strife, and ultimately uh, perhaps annihilation of the species. So thank you again for giving us the opportunity to address these issues. Thank you, Paul, so, so much. Till we meet next time. <laughs>